0: Welcome back. Today, my guest is Robert Whitaker. He's an American journalist and author who's won numerous awards as a journalist covering medicine and science, including the George Polk Award for Medical Writing and a National Association for Science Writers Award for Best Magazine Article. In 1998, sorry, I cut that up. In 1998, he co-wrote a series on psychiatric research for the Boston Globe that was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize Price for Public Service. His first book, Mad in America, was named by Discover Magazine as one of the best science books of 2002. Anatomy of an Epidemic, won the 2010 Investigative Reporters and Editors Book Award for best in, do that one more time. Anatomy of an Epidemic won the 2010 Investigative Reporters and Editors Book Award for Best Investigative Journalism. Robert is the publisher of madinamerica.com. Welcome, Bob.
1: It's nice to be here, Roman. Thanks for having me.
0: My pleasure. And uh, I'm so glad I can call you Bob. Robert is a very official um, American journalist title.
1: (laughs) No one actually calls me Robert. Everyone calls me Bob. Good, good. And you know, if you're Uh, called Bob, it means you're of a certain age. There's no Bobs today being born.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. I like that. Well, Well, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for taking the time. Um, this show is very radically called ADHD is over. And the reason why is because we, my wife and I believe in this, uh, uh, call it a belief system that if we want something to be over, we can create it that way, at least for ourselves and for our family, we've declared it that it's over. Now you've been doing research for long, long, long time on psychiatry, psychology, different issues that. Uh, first of all, I acknowledge you for still being at it because it probably was easy to give up at some point and say, what am I doing?
1: Right? Uh, No question. I still sometimes wish I had given it up. It's a little bit like banging your, you know, there's such a power structure that maintains conventional thinking and all. So uh, to challenge conventional thinking can be a little bit after a while, like banging your head on the wall. So uh, there are other pursuits that sometimes might seem more fruitful and easier as well. And, and the only reason I've really stayed with you is that it's because it's around a subject that has had such a profound influence on our lives about how we think about ourselves, how we respond to difficulties, how we raise our children. So there is a conventional narrative out there that is is really a philosophy of being that we've adopted. And, uh, so that's why I stayed with it. It is it, it, psychiatrists had such an impact on us over the past forty years, and so if that impact has been negative or is born, you know, sort of from a non-scientific story, it makes it worthwhile to try to, uh, you know, counter it.
0: Well, well said, yeah. And you, you know, you write on science and and medicine, and I guess we can we can take psychiatry. Where would psychiatry fall? Because science, in my opinion, has a duty to keep evolving and to keep taking new information in account and right and uh, adapt or adjust. Is psychiatry more, I mean, obviously medicine as well, but why does it feel so much like psychiatry or psychology? They're trying to say this is the truth and now that's it. We're not going to evolve it. It's it.
1: Yeah, well... With psychiatry, let's stick with psychiatry. Psychology yeah. has its own story. So, you know, medicine is, is a practice. And the idea is that it will be a practice that is imbued by science, okay? Mm-hmm. Or that it, it'll look to science, meaning research and sort of search for truth and assessment of its treatments as a way to guide that science. I just wanna say, I don't think medicine is a science. Medicine is a practice and we want it to be influenced by science mm. or and incorporate the values of science, etc. The problem with psychiatry is, is that, and you really touched on this, is that psychiatry is a guild. As in, you know, when we speak of a guild, a guild is like a trade union or whatever. Well, psychiatry as a guild in the 1970s felt that its survival as a guild was was threatened and was in fact threatened. There was psychologists providing therapy, there were counselors, there were all sorts of people getting into the therapy business. And so psychiatry at that time said, well, what? What, do, what advantage do we have in this competitive marketplace? And they said, well, we can prescribe drugs and these others can't. And this also came at a time that uh, psychoanalysis was also coming under a lot of criticism as not being particularly effective. So what psychiatry decided, American psychiatry decided in 1980, in the 1970s said, listen, we need to remake ourselves. We need to brand ourselves as doctors like doctors in white coats. So, and they said, well, what profession, what medical profession has such prestige, what profession has such prestige in our society? And it's really the doctor in the white coat, right? The ones that prescribe antibiotics, the ones that deal with physical illnesses. And they said, we, not just metaphorically, but literally need to put on a white coat and present ourselves as doctors. Now, what, are, what do doctors do? They treat diseases, right? so in 1980 with that thought in mind that if we can reconceptualize uh, psychiatric difficulty as diseases if we do that that will elevate our standing because we're going to be the doctors that treat that diseases and that will separate us from the rest of the pack the ther- you know pack of therapists so in 1980 they they published the uh, third edition of their diagnostic and statistical manual and what they said as they did that they said we are going to now conceptualize psychiatric disorders as diseases of the brain, and, and we're gonna conceptualize the thought that, say, schizophrenia is as different from bipolar as, and as different as from depression as, say, heart disease is from cancer. These are gonna be discrete illnesses. So that's the conception they, they, they said they were gonna to promote to the public. Now, if you actually read the book at that time, they said these diagnoses, this sort of, uh, and I forget how many different diagnoses they had in DSM-3, but they said they're hypotheses. We're going to hypothesize these are discrete illnesses of the brain. And particularly with the major ones, we're going to hope to do research that will validate them as discrete illnesses in the future. Okay. But once they... Conceptualize psychiatric disorders in this way, they then began wanting to tell the public a story that fit that conceptualization. So they wanted to tell a story of, oh, we are finding that depression is a brain disease. We're finding that bipolar is a brain disease. And they had newly created a diagnosis called attention deficit disorder in 1980. There was no such disorder prior to 1980 in the Uh, first two editions of their Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, and so they wanted to conceive of Attention Deficit Disorder as a brain illness. Now yet, if you look at how you're going to diagnose it, it's all about behaviors like doesn't pay attention in school or taps his fingers too much, stuff like that. It was all behaviors that parents didn't like and teachers didn't like. So the symptomatology were not symptoms of a disease. They were symptoms of a sort of behavior that others didn't like in certain settings, but nevertheless, they said, we're going to call this an illness. And once they do that, now they start looking for any bits of evidence that helps them sell that story to the public. Mm. And then as part of this story, they want to sell to the public is that these are illnesses and our treatments for them, our drug treatments are like, uh, Anecdotes or specific treatments for that disease, okay? Now, that's not how science proceeds. You don't come up with a story you want to tell and then search for information that will help tell that story. And when the information arises, doesn't quite fit, you don't then sort of make up stuff. Science is about being a search for the truth. And yeah, you can have a hypothesis, but then you have to be prepared to find information that doesn't fit that hypothesis, or in fact, belies the hypothesis, shows that it doesn't have merit. But so the point is, what you had beginning in 1980 was a guild that decided for guild purposes, it wanted to tell a certain story about psychiatric disorders, and then it tried to gather information and research that would help support that story that's not a scientific endeavor that's a really a marketing the guild endeavor and I was as say, they prop- did propaganda this, but yeah. yeah really and as they did this pharmaceutical companies loved this new uh, conception because it i can't sell you a drug for finger tapping, it, it, what, a kid who's finger tapping in a school or fidgeting too much. I can't, I can't market a drug. I can't go to the FDA and go like, oh, I have a drug for fidgety kids, but I can have a drug for a disease called ADHD. So what happened with this new conception in DSM-3, drug companies said, wow, this is fantastic. <laughs> We're going to have all these behaviors and disorders and feelings that now can be classified as diseases. And we can market drugs for those diseases. And so what did they do? They began funneling a lot of money to the American Psychiatric Association and to individual psychiatrists to help sell the story of illnesses and of effective drugs for those illnesses to the American public. And that's what happened over the past 40 years. And we have to say this. Wow, did they do that well? Yeah. They sold that story to us in a remarkably – transformative fashion. They, they, they got us to believe that story. So from a capitalistic point of view, you have powerful organizations that need to build a market for their services or for their products. And that's what psychiatry and pharmaceutical companies did with great effect. So if you want to view them through the lens of a success capital, uh, capitalistic success, they achieved it. They did. They achieved. They built markets. They built a demand for product, and you know, with great success.
0: Now, that's a that's a great. Uh, thank you for for you know diving into detail because it really gives a background to where this all came from. And I remember I did some research on the DSM, and I believed that until seventy three, being gay was considered a disease, right. and it reminds me of when doctors used to sell cigarettes, right? Or promote smoking. And so how come nowadays, though, we feel that, no, this, but now they're telling the truth. This is really, is that a matter of them just brainwashing everyone for years that we, we do tell the truth and the, the DSM, the new version is, uh, you know, the truth. Even though we, we, we interviewed uh, Dr. Alan Francis recently, and he clearly said that there was some, some stuff happening that shouldn't have been happening in DSM-5, right? And he was there. Yeah. But how come, pe- how come parents are still
1: Here, Here's it? why. Here's why. So if you go back to when they were calling being gay a illness, right? That all came from a sort of psychoanalytic, psychological framework around psychiatry okay in other words psychiatry in the 70s was sort of mocked for having all oh, these crazy shrinks with the long you know stroking their chins and the couch and that became sort of a, an object of mockery okay and so it wasn't really wrapped in the gauze of the cloth of hard science okay but when they did in 1980 when they reconceptualized these as discrete illnesses and they really were adopting like a, a uh, an anti uh, uh, an antibacterial, uh, uh, you know, uh, antibiotic model of illness. You have a pathogen, and then you have an uh, you know an antibiotic that kills that pathogen. And here they were saying, okay, there's this abnormality in your brain, and, and it's, maybe it's like diabetes or a chemical imbalance, and we can fix that. We can, and that's that's a story of hard science. And that's a story that fits into a larger story of medical progress. Listen, one of the things they'd say, these drugs are like uh, insulin for diabetes. Well, that's one of the great uh, discoveries of, uh, you know, medical discoveries of the 20th century, that this diabetes was, was due to a, a problem with insulin, insulin in your body, and then by giving the insulin, you could sort of repair that. Well, that's a great advance. And then the other thing is, look at the name antidepressant, antipsychotic. Well, what is an antibiotic? It's an antidote to some known problem. And they were fitting into that story as well. So the point is, this new story got delivered to us in the form of hard science that we were used to and fits into this larger story of medical progress in the 20th century, which is real, right? There yeah. was great progress in the twentieth century in fighting infectious diseases and that sort of thing, uh, and and repairing problems. So it fit into a medical model we believed in, and actually had reason believed in to believe in. And finally, it came from. Whereas the the, the seventy stories around you know homosexuality is an illness and all that. That really wasn't coming out of academic uh, environments, okay? Not really. The ivory towers. This new hard science story comes from Harvard. It comes from Johns Hopkins. It comes from professors at Stanford. These are all people with great academic prestige. So the reason we believe it is it fits into a medical story of progress, and the people telling it have great prestige in our society. Professors at leading academic institutions they are scientific truth tellers at least we expect them to be so that's the cultural context for the selling of this story it was it fit into a medical story of progress and the storytellers were people professors at leading academic institutions and and we're trained to um think of them as as honest (laughs) storytellers well that's perhaps
0: a good uh uh, transition into what I wanted to talk about, which was this international consensus, uh, Russell Barkley was spearheading the creation of, for those listening here, uh, if you're not familiar with it, it's just a simple document of uh, a group of, I think it's psychiatrists and psychologists yeah. who, are ba- who are basically saying, hey public, uh, we know you've heard that ADHD is not real or does not exist, but that's actually not true. Please believe us, it is real. And we need to educate the media to tell people that it's a real disease. And if it's not treated, that, that people will have uh, destructive lives, right? I mean, right. in my words, right? How did you feel when you, you must have come across that early on when it came out? Or how, how, how did it land for you when you saw that consensus?
1: Well, uh, listen, I... <laughs> So why did they need this, first of all? <laughs> why did they need this document? I mean, cancer doctors don't say like, okay, we're really dealing with diseases. And, and, and you know, and it, so obviously there was a group who was promoting this story of, of ADHD as a medical illness who felt threatened in some ways. They weren't totally winning the battle with the public, okay? So they felt a need to... Uh, sort of stand before the public, again, presenting themselves as the guardians of real science against these you know, plebeians who aren't scientists and are challenging what we're saying to you. So they need to do it, first of all, because whenever you look at the actual science, it's not there. So there's a vulnerability there if you actually dig into the scientific literature around ADHD. So if you're, actually vul- if you're not vulnerable, you don't need to do this. In other words, if if real science is on your side, you can say, listen, here's the evidence that it's a real illness, and here's the evidence of the efficacy of our treatments, and here's the evidence of what happens if the illness is untreated, okay? You can just respond to the science. The problem is within ADHD, if you dig into it, it, they don't have such science to support them, and we can talk about that. So what you need to do is you need to say, we're the ones you can trust, we have the standing in society, and it's anti-science to challenge us, okay? Yeah. So that's what they're really doing is they're trying to shut down a discussion. And you can see this. They're, they're going to say, if you're a media person, because this was directed at the media. Exactly. If you air these criticisms of us, it's like airing someone who's saying the earth is flat. Yeah. Now, if you're a science journalist, if you're a reporter, the last thing you want to be said is that like you're giving voice to the, the you know, cranks that like think the earth is flat. Now, and I'll, I'll talk about where the strategy arose from. This didn't just happen now, but that was the purpose of this. The purpose of this was to make it uh, to shut down discussion to shut down investigations into the science and make journalists afraid to give any airtime to those who would criticize this story or critique this story. And that actually goes back to the early 1990s. And what happened was, as psychiatry and the drug industry brought on these new drugs, Prozac, the new antidepressants, and then the new antipsychotics, there were some critiques of the antidepressants, especially around suicide. Could these drugs possibly uh, harm, um, you know, cause, increase the risk of suicide? And they basically strategize the drug companies with, with their, quote, thought leaders. Thought leaders are people at academic institutions who receive lots of money from pharmaceutical companies because they have this professional standing to build markets, okay? So in other words, these are the people who do, do the you know, sign the research papers or do the continuing education classes and do the textbooks, but they're getting a lot of money from drug companies to serve as their consultants. Anyway, in 1992, there was going to be a, uh, an FDA hearing on do, do Prozac and the new SSRIs increase the risk of suicide. And that's because there were all sorts of reports coming into the FDA about people going on the drugs and becoming suicidal or even committing suicide. And the strategy that the pharmaceutical companies and, and psychiatry came up with is, oh, we're going to call those people either Scientologists, the critics, or we're gonna accuse them of, of being like, living in the 16th century and still believing in the flat earth, okay? We're gonna denigrate, we're gonna delegitimize the criticism with this flat earth criticism. And at the minute that happens, for, for science journalists, working for newspapers or magazines, that's a, that's a red flag saying, we're going to destroy you as a journalist if you go down this path. Mm. Because you, we're going to say you're throwing your hat in the ring with these crazy people who, don't, who are anti-science people. So it, be, it became known that this was a way to protect the larger story that psychiatry was telling at the time. And what you see here in, in this 2002 consensus is the application of that strategy of how to still criticism criticism and to make reporters in the mainstream media afraid of even listening to it. Now That's are you saying, here.
0: are you saying that, uh, uh, that that reference of the flat earth in this two thousand and two document is kind of a repeat like
1: it's like Yeah it's a repeat. It's just like a strategy. Yeah. yeah, it's a strategy and it, it works. You want to be a you want to be a science reporter, and all of a sudden, like being called by someone uh, from Johns Hopkins or Stanford, like a member of a flat Earth society, and then your editor's going like What the what the hell is going on here, Bob? Yeah, what are you doing? Like, what are you giving credence to? Like, cranks? We have to be responsible on our science coverage, and that means you got to go listen to the people from Johns Hopkins, Stanford, et cetera, because that's the tradition. Yeah. And then we can talk about this, quote, international consensus, because that's an interesting story in itself. Well, that's the first thing when I read that, right? I went to see who, who is on this list. How is that international when there's like maybe five other countries in there? Well, know? first of all, when they do this, they want, this is again to give the consensus to seeming like more appeal, that it's not coming from any one group. Well, you got to understand, again, when, when it comes to ADHD, how did this rise up? What well, was an American invention, okay? So the diagnosis starts in 1980. It's called ADD, Attention Deficit Disorder. Then it gets expanded into ADHD. Well, initially, Europeans were saying, this is nonsense. What are you talking about, you crazy Americans? These are ordinary children. You're pathologizing children. So American, the Americans pursuing this story felt isolated initially. Now, what happened is pharmaceutical companies began ex- working, you know, paying uh, psychiatrists in other countries to begin promoting this idea. And also they began holding conferences where they would fly people, child psychiatrists from other countries to come to these conferences and listen to the Americans and start building an international belief system, so to speak. Anyway, so what you want to do with an international consensus, let's say I'm a pharmaceutical company and let's say um, I've been given money to people, you know, quote thought leaders from um, thought leaders are people who can, who can influ- they're called key opinion leaders also. So what you try to do as a pharmaceutical company, if you want to build a market for ADHD drugs, you want to go work with people from say Harvard or other institutions and you're gonna start paying them money to do your research, to serve as your consultants, give talks, right? But I don't pay you (laughs) unless, basically, you're helping me build this market. Now, the the, the thought leader himself says, oh, I'm an expert, et cetera, et cetera. But that's what you have, you have this mix. So when I do an international consensus, I'm going to get the people who I'm, are already working with the pharmaceutical companies to be on that panel. And so in this one, I think you probably saw the majority were Americans, right? Yep, yep. Okay, so I bring those group, that group of Americans that have already sort of been sold on this idea, and maybe I'm paying a number of them or nearly all of them to be my advisors, and then I grab a few that I'm already now working with in, in other countries to be on that, And it looks like this panel of great people across many countries. And what you really have is a group of thought leaders already being paid trying to sort of promote this idea and then joined by some others in other countries. And it it makes it look like it's a scientific consensus when really it's something very different.
0: Well, that's interesting because when I was reading the excerpt there where it says, uh, something about all of the major medical associations and government health agencies recognize ADHD as a genuine disorder because the scientific evidence indicating it is so overwhelming. And I thought the word overwhelming was an interesting choice, right? It's not that it's evident, but it's just so overwhelming. You just need to stop uh, trying to fight it. Yeah, you know? yeah. And I guess you know, right, in some ways, In
1: some ways, uh, you know, the journals did, did, did end up did end up buying into that story. The editors yeah. did as well. And there's a whole story why that may be so. And w-
0: do you have any idea what uh, uh why was it written at that time? Because I usually look at like, was there anything, I mean, happening around 2001 or something came out that suddenly it was ADHD was, uh, does not exist or is not real, or I'm sure there was something that had them go like, whoa, 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 we gotta like majorly push back, you know? early 2000s right
1: yeah i don't really know the answer to that yeah so you know we get dsm-4 in 1994 which it makes it easier to diagnose adhd and then we also start getting some new uh you know drugs on patent for adhd at that time as well so it had been a ritalin franchise but now we get you know Stratera, whatever some of the other new, on patent, more expensive medications are, and all I can say is probably there had been this recurring dissent around ADHD within the public because it is something that stirs almost immediately a reaction from a large segment of the population that is, come on are we are we is this truly a disease or are we pathologizing normal kids? Mm. So I don't there's almost always been this discord present, okay, with, with, their, with dissenters writing books and stuff, and maybe some findings that aren't really supporting the story. I don't know what was happening exactly in 2002, but, what I see, but my guess is, in a larger sense, is you had the a dramatic expansion of the ADHD enterprise Post-DSM-4, and you you could have talked to Alan Francis about this. The percentage of kids getting diagnosed starts to go up dramatically. And as it goes up dramatically, you get this uh, societal uh, pushback, Uh like, really, do we have this many kids that have whatever this thing is? So it must have been a time when the promoters of this story felt a little bit vulnerable and they needed to shut down discussion.
0: It was like the the downside of the curve, right? Like the bell yeah. curve, and it's going. And they're like, "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa! Let's bring it back up."
1: Yeah. So yeah, that's I probably they clearly felt some threat to yeah. the story they were telling, and this was the way to say we're going to shut down this dissent and this discord, and yeah. we're going to delegitimize the the dissent and the and the criticisms. Uh,
0: and I like that you and I are both mentioned there, not by name, but we are considered. Uh, I guess, uh, what is it, uh, propaganda of the, 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 the fringe, <laughs> fringe doctors and the public that's been, you know, <laughs> the, the Huckleberry Finns and their caregivers. And I, I just love how they, they're kind of really feisty in there, you know, almost like...
1: So you have desperate. to see what they're doing. Are they actually citing evidence or what are they doing here? They're, they're, they're demonizing those who would criticize them.
0: Right, which is not All what right. science, a real no, scientific they're try, they're process. They're
1: trying to delegitimize the critics.
0: Well, I'll tell you a little side story. I don't think I've told you this on on, on any of our other uh, conversations during conversations. Is we reached out to uh, Russell Barkley himself, uh, trying to get an interview, and he denied it. Uh, I could tell he didn't want to be part of it. Obviously, it's called ADHDs over. And I thought to myself. If I was a a doctor or a scientist or someone committed to something ending, right? I'm ending cancer. I'm ending ADHD. I would at least be interested in a Zoom call conversation to go, what do you, give me some challenging thoughts. I want to engage because if I get anything from you, I'm going to use it for that purpose. Right. But there was no involvement, no interest in even having a discussion where we're coming from, what we're trying to achieve. Right. And I just felt like I didn't get the sense that he was on a team that really wants to make this end. Well, we know why, but um, so that's yeah, what I'm running up against out there. Well, you this know, is it. an
1: example, right? I mean, if, if, if you have good, if you're really in a, in a arena of science, right? Well, then you can have a debate about what the evidence shows and that sort of thing. Cause you don't, you don't, Because first of all, you have to remain remain open-minded about your own beliefs, right? Because anybody with a scientific mind knows they have to be ready to change their thinking as new evidence comes in. That's the scientific mind. Science evolves. Science uh, is not a a steady state thing. And the, the unwillingness to engage arises from this. It's because the way they've defended their turf is to delegitimize those who would critique them. It hasn't been actually by a, a careful presentation of the evidence. So they feel vulnerable, and, and and in a way, in any sort of real scientific discussion. So the way they do it is they just say, oh, you're not worthy of my time, you're a crank. Again, it's a, it's a, it's a, it just shows a, a need to, um, delegitimize the criticism without engaging with it because engaging with it brings them into an arena where they can't that very quickly, it becomes evident to the evident to the audience that there's some real reasons for these criticisms. There's some validity to them and we can go through here in in just a bit. And most important I think is this. If they were to start making some of their claims with someone who really was uh, really fluent with the literature, they could end up humiliated. Mm-hmm. And no one wants to be publicly humiliated, especially like if you're the world expert on this stuff. So that's yeah. another reason not to engage with questions about, is it genetic or how about the merits of the drugs and that sort of thing? Because as you drill down into the actual information, they can suddenly end up before the public with the loss of their professional clothing so to speak
0: right which would jeopardize their entire life's work yeah and their
1: own self-conception too because you can be sure that most of the promoters end up believing whatever they're saying yeah people believe what they say eventually you say it often enough you're going to believe it especially if you're rewarded for it it brings you prestige power that sort of thing
0: it's interesting because my wife and i used to work in commercial design and and uh advertising and we would have different car companies as clients and every car company client would always go like we truly have the best cars in the world of course and then the next one comes in and they really believed it they're like no, yeah i mean this is right so i can totally relate to that but one of the things i wanted to say what you just reminded me of was this cute meme i saw on, on social media that said 90 percent of scientists agree with the people that fund them
1: and I thought, yeah, that's, <laughs> it's really true. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, this, is, this is one of the problems that the scientists do agree with who funds them.
0: So, anyway, but uh, I'd love to dive in a little bit uh, into um, what I call the myths. They don't call them myths, but on our side, um, there's these myths that parents are sold. One is, let's start with one, it's genetic, as in it's predetermined, there's nothing you can do about it. So, maybe just give us your feel free as. To go as deep as you want, or from whatever. Uh, yeah. Uh, so real
1: quickly on this. So yeah. if you want to validate a disorder, a disease, one of the ways you validate it, you, you say, okay, listen, look at this genetic connection, you know. So uh, and then and then you can even then hopefully identify the gene or genes that make it more, you know, hand it down, right? So you'll see certain genes in the one of the parents or maybe both the parents that parent has a certain symptomology or certain disease, and then you identify that, oh, and that's what the kid has, that becomes a genetic disorder, right? And and, and, and it doesn't even necessarily mean that um, it's only from the parent. And maybe it's just that for whatever reason you have mutations that show up characteristically and you say that's the genetic problem, that's the defect. So... The genetic claim is part of this desire to tell a story that validates ADHD as a real illness, okay? So now you got to go, well, well, where's the proof for this? And I'll give you an example. I think it was a 2010 study. This is one of the ones most often cited. I, I forget where it was published. Here's what they said. And, and you gotta, you got to dig into this because it's so ludicrous when you actually read the study itself that is used to make a claim that it's genetic. They found, they were, they were measuring something called, uh, it's like CNV or something, like little disruptions in the genetic code, okay? And which they were going to identify this particular set of disruptions or the, as somehow associated with ADHD, okay? Now, what they first reported was something like, well, look at 14% of kids diagnosed with ADHD have this genetic disruption, okay, 14%. And then for the non-ADHD controls, I think it was 7%. So now let's just take that data. That meant 86% of kids diagnosed with ADHD didn't have that disruption, and 7%, who didn't have that, you know, of the controls, had that same genetic disruption. So even on the surface of that is, that's not a sign of a genetic marker, right? And then it turns out with a little further analysis of the group in that study that was the ADHD group, there actually were a number of kids with an intellectual disability, quite apart from the ADHD diagnosis, right? Mm And if you took out those kids, it turned out, well, now among the ADHD group, there was 11% that had this genetic sort of like signs of a little bit abnormalities or, you know, versus 7% in the control group. Meaning that that this didn't show anything, right? It showed that most ADHD kids didn't have this genetic or disruption. And it's also in, in kids without ADHD and yet, and that study was cited as evidence that it's genetic. And that's often seen as the best study for this. Wow! So this is what I need. So this is what we, we need to talk about when we talk about myths. We need to go through the studies that are cited to support the claim. And then we need to deconstruct them. And once you deconstruct them, you see that, no, this is not the type of evidence you see when you have a genetic marker for an illness. Mm. So that's the genetic story.
0: That's the genetic. Well, I like that. Um, That's well said. Now, chemical imbalance, we hear this all the time. It's a chemical
1: imbalance in the brain. Yeah, this one one is particularly idiotic. Um, I mean, so first of all, the whole chemical imbalance story arose from understanding how antipsychotics and antidepressants act on the brain. Okay, so what do antipsychotics do? They block dopamine transmission in the brain dramatically, so much so that they actually mimic the deficiency you see in Parkinson's disease. But anyway, antipsychotics were found to block dopamine transmission, so people hypothesized that schizophrenia or psychotic disorders are due to too much. A do- a dopamine, okay, the opposite of what the drug does. Now, once you have that hypothesis, you actually have to find that there's a lesion in the dopamine system in people so diagnosed before they go on the drug, and long story, they never really found that for schizophrenia patients, that there was a characteristic lesion. Now, what do what does Prozac do, <laughs> okay? It ups serotonergic activity, so they hypothesized that people with depression had too little serotonin. But again, once that hypo- so the hypothesis is born from how the drug acts on the brain and then you hypothesize the pathology as the opposite. So you now have to see, do people with depression before they go on the drugs actually suffer from low, pr- low serotonin? Well, they investigated that and they never found it to be so. And in 1998, the American Psychiatric Association's own textbook said, listen, we've investigated this low serotonin theory of depression, and we just found no evidence for it. Now, that's what their science said. They told another story to the public. So now let's turn to ADHD. So that's actually where there was any science around the chemical imbalance. But when they began wanting to market ADHD as an illness, and there was a group called CHAD, which was heavily funded by the drug companies. And Chad started saying like, oh, uh, ADHD is due to too little dopamine in the brain. So why did they say that? Well, they just applied that same sort of thinking. So stimulants like Ritalin, they release dopamine. They increase dopamine activity. So they hypothesized, oh, ADHD, this really wasn't even a hypothesis. It was just sort of a claim to, to sell parents on this. ADHD is due to too little dopamine in the brain. So that's where it arises from. It's it's the whole story of chemical imbalances arises from understanding of how the drugs act on the brain and then wanting to create a story about how they fix some abnormality. But then you actually have to find that people with these diagnoses actually have that characteristic abnormality and that research never panned out. And you can even see in 1998, in their own textbook, the American Psychiatric Association saying, it didn't pan out. And in 2005, I think it was, Kenneth Kendler, who is uh, one of the world leaders in the search for chemical imbalances, he says this, we have hunted for big, simple, neurochemical explanations for psychiatric disorders, And we have not found them. Yet you're still hearing this, right? Absolutely. So why? Because the chemical imbalance story was part of a marketing story to sell this disorder to the public, to sell drugs to the market. And it just got going. And basically, because it got going, it got going with ordinary primary care physicians who didn't know what the science said. They were just repeating what they're told, and next thing you know, you have this this story bossing in society, and it maintains its presence in society even after the scientists. The researchers who looked into this are saying, we didn't find it. Now here's how, this is a great way to see this complete mismatch between what the public is told and what the science told. There's a psychiatrist named Ronald Pies. He's the former editor-in-chief of Psychiatric Times, which is is basically a trade publication of the American Psychiatric Association. Here's what he wrote in 2012. The story of chemical imbalances is a kind of urban legend, never a theory seriously propounded by well-informed psychiatrists. And actually, people like Bob Whitaker and critics say we said this to make us look bad because, of course, it's an idiotic uh, sort of, it was never a theory we seriously propounded. That's how far they're backing off of the, you know, researchers of the chemical imbalance of mental disorders. Now, why are they saying that? Why does Ronald Pye say that? Because, in fact, I and others had said, look at what, your organization said for years, because the APA had such information on its website, now look at your own research. Let's take people behind the, the, the curtain and let's go into the scientific literature where you were saying you weren't finding this. So now Ronald Pies in 2012, once people have you know, taken the public behind that curtain, they're faced with an embarrassing moment. Why did you lie to us? Why did you lie to the public? Now they have two choices. Either they have to say, oh, we did find that, or they have to go back and say we never said it because you're not supposed to lie to the public. You're not supposed to say to the public, you have chemical imbalances, that's why you need need the drugs. So what Ronald Pies is doing is trying to maintain, we never said it. That leaves our reputation um, intact. And we're going to blame people like Whitaker for saying we said that. Now, you can actually go and, of course, you, you you can see when the APA was saying it in public education campaigns. In fact, I think it was 2006, they ran, the APA ran a campaign that said, we need to inform the public that we psychiatrists are experts in fixing chemical imbalances in the brain. That was their educational campaign. And then they said, and they did a survey afterwards and said, look at it, it's pretty effective. The more and more the public understands we fix chemical imbalances. They were doing that as a guild campaign eight years after their own textbook said, we didn't find this to be so. Wow. So is it a myth? It's not exactly a myth. It's a hypothesis that was floated and didn't wasn't found to be true. And yet now they sort of maintain it because it got such it got rolling, and it's it's a little embarrassing to say oh, well we never really we never we never really found that out
0: so wow it's worse than that's if. amazing to me right it's
1: yeah it's really a story of the betrayal of the American public.
0: And it's become a, like you said, it's become an urgent urban legend because I talk to people almost on a weekly basis that mention still mention it and say, well, but it is a chemical imbalance in the brain. And I go, no, it's not. And they go, well, you wouldn't know. I know
1: because that's what uh, everyone tells me. The the, the irony is, but this goes to this whole thing is that the people who say that say I'm the scientific one. (laughs) And you, the critics say, but wait a minute, I've spent years looking through the literature and I've traced how it came up. And they're like, oh, I'm the one who knows. This this just shows the problem, the extraordinary problem we have in terms of even discussing this. Now,
0: let's go to the next one, which is one of my big uh, pet peeves, if you will, is that I've heard experts like Russell Barkley say medication is and I believe he says the most effective treatment, he doesn't say the only effective, uh, but the most effective treatment, and I wanna really look at the word effective. What are we talking about here when they say medication, stimulant drugs are effective?
1: So there's two parts answer to this story. So if if ADHD, the symptoms of our ADHD is you talk too much to others in class, you don't pay attention, or you tap your fingers a lot, Okay, well, if you have a medication that makes you more isolated, more or less likely to talk to others, now, you and I might say that's not a great thing, right? But it's seen as effective in quieting that symptom of talking too much in class. Or if I'm a seven-year-old that is you know, fidgeting and like not sitting in my seat, for six hours a day, I'm eight, and I get a drug that quiets that movement, that reduce. And this is a real story. I mean, this is this is how symptoms are looked at. Uh, that's seen as effectiveness. You're moving around less, okay? And that. And in 1992, there was sort of a, a, a an APA task force on this, and they said, yeah, our drugs are effective in. Uh, diminishing um, movement, diminishing socialization, but what we don't have evidence of is that it improves uh, school performance over the long-term, okay? Or improves uh, any sort of long-term improvement in any domain that we would want it to improve on, (laughs) such as creativity, uh, that sort of thing. And even from the beginning, it was like, well, maybe they focus better on math problems But you see people saying, once on drugs, they're not as creative. They're not as good as problem solvers. Well, okay, then you say, well, well, the effectiveness is, is we want someone who at least seems to focus better on the reading. Maybe they don't comprehend as much, but at least they'll sit in front of the book. So the first question that you've raised is, what do we mean by effectiveness? And so if you have certain symptoms that are quieted, by a drug, that becomes a model of effectiveness, okay? That becomes a, a report of effectiveness. Anyway, in 19, early 1990s, it was recognized- uh, Bob, one, one second. Um,
0: I'm having the internet connections. A I'm just going to turn off my video. You can keep going. Okay. Um, so you want me to turn can... off my video? No, you're like- uh yeah this should be better can you hear me yeah yeah maybe i should yeah. turn off mine too you can i like to always capture it because it's good to have that but uh because okay. now i think it's mindset unstable so maybe just go back to when you said in 1992 i believe that's how you started
1: yeah so this is really important because this is sort of a critical moment in the history of the assessment of uh you know the merits of stimulant treatment for adhd so by 1992, they said, "Listen, we have studies that show that yes, Ritalin reduces fidgetiness and reduces social interaction. Okay, and that makes them quieter in a in a in a classroom. But they said, and this was a, a panel that looked at this, said, we don't have any in evidence that the, this treatment actually improves in any way the long term functioning of these kids. Okay, does it help them do better in school?" Does it help them in socialization? Does it help them by the time they're adults, you know, in in sort of work environments? So they ran a study called the MTA study. And this study, they mounted it in 1994, they said was the first really good uh, clinical assessment of treatments for ADHD. And the results we get will help us guide our thinking about what sort of care we should give. It's a long story, but basically, they had four arms in this study. They had people given Ritalin alone by doctors in the community. They had children given Ritalin by experts in ADHD, Ritalin alone. Then they had um, behavioral therapy alone and they had, then they had behavioral therapy plus Ritalin, okay? And this study is still cited as the study that is the most um, uh, compelling evidence regarding treatments for ADHD. Now, after 14 months, the group that was randomized to Ritalin alone as prescribed by the experts were doing slightly better on reading than the other groups. And so they said, see, this this treatment, Ritalin prescribed by excerpts, produces a long-term benefit. Kids are doing better with reading. Now, they also had a a reduction in ADHD symptoms, better than the behavioral group, and that meant like the the fidgetiness and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. That 14-month result is still cited, but that study continues. And by the end of three years, being on medication was a marker, and I am quoting the words from the researchers, not of benefit, but of deterioration over three years. In other words, of worse ADHD symptoms. And there was some sign that the kids who got the drugs were, uh, you know, had some suppressed growth, and maybe some signs of, of, of functional impairment as well. But they actually were seen as it was a marker of deterioration. By six years the medicated group were likely to be more symptomatic, have more delinquent problems, and have more signs of functional impairments. In other words, being on medication long-term was associated with worse outcomes. This was the most important study. It's still, still seen as the most important study of the long-term effects of, of these different treatments. And so what are you heard today? Which of those three periods of results are communicated to the public? The 14-month results, or the three-year results, or the six-year results? And I guarantee you, go on different websites and all, it's the 14-month results. So yeah. this, this goes to this problem of what the public is told. They're told a story that is meant to uh, support conventional thinking, that this is a discrete illness, it's genetic, and the drugs are ha- effective. And then they, rem- they don't tell us about, you know, the three-year results, the six-year results, because that belies the story they want to tell. And that mm-hmm. goes back to maybe why they don't want to be on your show, because you'd ask them about the three-year results. You'd ask them about the six-year results.
0: So it's a cherry picking here that's going on.
1: Absolutely. I mean, that's a classic example of where they're, where they're telling you the results from a time that make the drugs look good, and they're hiding The results when, you know, that actually are telling of a form of treatment that is doing harm. Now, if you're a parent, right, and you're told of the 14-month results, you might say, okay, he's doing better in school. I mean, he's doing better in reading, and it seems like he's got this reduction of ADHD symptoms, whatever that is. But would you be so eager to put your, your kids on the drugs if you were told, oh, but at the end of three years, being on drug is a marker of deterioration? Hmm. Or would you want to go down this path if you were told, oh, and we had this, stu- this same study, but they ended by six years, we saw worse ADHD symptoms, growth suppression, um, greater risk of acting in delinquent manners, and greater sort of functional impairment. Now, would you as a, a parent go, oh, yeah, give me a kid that treatment?
0: No, no. And I think what's interesting, though, is as a parent, you may, if you knew the, the full truth, right, the, the, the two-sided narrative, you may say, oh, you know what, we're going to do it for a year because we need it right now. We, we need a Band-Aid. And then we're not going to continue because studies show that, right? So you'd have yeah. the full picture. Yeah,
1: that's called informed consent.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's what's missing here.
1: Yeah. By the way, there's even reasons to question the 14-month stuff. It's a long story, but...
0: uh, Uh, I'm sure. I'm sure we'll get into that at some point when they're trying to debunk what we're going to say. But, you know, it's all good. I'd like to have these conversations. Anyway, that's
1: the next next bit about the myths.
0: (laughs) What about the unmedicated children with ADHD will end up self-medicating?
1: Well, (laughs) yeah. So this, the idea is that they'll be self-medicating, maybe even with the illegal drugs, right? They're more likely yeah. to be abusive of drugs. Yeah. Now, I don't know the, the sort of scope of this research as well as I know some of these others. But first of all, there was, the, there was a study done in the 90s that looked at this and actually found that exposure to stimulants made you more likely to be abusing drugs as a teenager, which is what you might expect, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, stimulants are speed. So you might think that kids that are exposed to speed when they're 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 might be more likely to abuse these drugs, abuse, you know, have substance abuse problems as 17 and 18-year-olds. And that's what this person found. She died in a car crash, and then you don't see her research promoted at all. Now, the research that that challenges that has a lot come from the lab of a man named Joseph Biederman. Joseph Biederman is sort of, was Mr. ADHD promoting it. Uh, he's at MGH uh, a Hospital in Boston. He's a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. Now, he made a career out of like, saying that juvenile bipolar disorder was real and you need to uh, give those kids antipsychotics and the other thing he made a career out of was saying that adhd is real and if you <clears throat> and if you don't medicate them they're going to have these horrible long-term outcomes a couple of things about this biederman was publishing articles like every two weeks i mean it, you know i once looked at the number of articles he'd written And it was like a new article every two weeks. Okay. He was a publication machine. The second thing you need to know about Biederman was he, he received money, I think was from like 24 different pharmaceutical companies, uh, including, you know, like we know in some instances, one company alone gave him something like $1.6 million over the course of a few years. So you, you do have this lab churning out results that seem to say this, that, oh, if you don't medicate, you're gonna have these, uh, you know, greater instance of, uh, you know, substance abuse or delinquent behavior. You know, all I'm gonna say is it comes from someone who is known for being compromised by financial influences. and I, And I just haven't done a real critique of that 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 those studies, but I almost willing to bet that if you did do a critique, you could come up with the same sort of undercutting of that story that we see with the effectiveness of the drugs or information around the genetics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just don't know what that critique is. Yeah, how those yeah. studies have been designed and uh, so forth.
0: It almost sounds again like a little bit of a a narrative that was set in motion back then and is still looked at as the truth, even though I think there's a lot of evidence that many, and I've talked to many young people and some are on my podcast that uh, ended up self-medicating because it was just the next best thing to do because they'd been popping pills since six years old, right? They were dependent on something on on the outside, like a a man-made substance to function. So it would make sense to continue exploring other substances, right?
1: yeah you know i I really should uh, look into this, but w- you know one of the things that you would need to look at is who is their unmedicated ADhd group right <laughs> and what are they being compared to so um, yeah I just so for example, one thing you might do is something like this you might see some kids that retrospectively or even prospectively look like they have quote adhd symptoms but they eschew treatment and then what you do is you actually don't compare them to a medicated group you compare them to like oh how about the larger group of non-adhd kids and you see some greater use of substance abuse in those that have these adhd symptoms but never got treated with stimulants. but that's not the comparison that needs to be made you need to make it to other kids who at age six or seven or eight were put on the drugs and see what what the comparison of substance abuse is by the right. time they're seventeen and eighteen. Anyway, I don't, I don't, I honestly don't know the framework of those studies. I just know it comes out a lot of a lab that was trying to prove, um, and had close ties to the makers of, you know, ADHD drugs. Was trying to provide a rationale for long term use of these drugs.
0: Yep, yep. No, I get it. Um, now the last one is uh, something we hear a lot, which is ADHD cannot be outgrown or healed that you pretty much have it for life
1: yeah that listen you know why that why you hear that because (laughs) initially the market for adhd drugs was kids right Yep. and and, and the thought was well you know kids you know kids do grow up into adults and they change but they wanted to expand the market for these drugs into adults You know, that was an untapped market. So they began marketing the idea that like, oh, you probably had ADHD all your life. And if you're not, you know, if you're having troubles with your job now or you don't like something, maybe you have ADHD now as an adult. So that was part of a market expansion story into adults. But of course, what we really know is Kids change all the time, right? The kids that were goof offs or having struggle, struggling in high school or grade school often are like incredibly successful as adults. Yeah. The point is, this idea that you don't outgrow it really was an effort to expand the market. And the one, an example of a study we have on that very question was done. Um, by someone named Martin Hugman, I think. And what they tried to say was, um, look, kids with ADHD have smaller brains. Now that <laughs> actually isn't really true either, but, but that's what, what they said. And what they really found was that th- that, uh, that if you looked at the bell curve of brain volumes, it was slightly different for kids seen as diagnosed with ADHD from those who are not. But even they then said, there's this This small difference in in bell curves disappears when they uh, grow up, so that sort of dispelled the idea that people didn't grow out of it. So this idea you don't grow out of it is, is basically think of it in this way ADhD the symptoms of it is a construct that says, okay, there's a certain percentage of kids that behave this way in school. That isn't ideal, right? Or they have some sort of struggles with schoolwork, et cetera, or paying attention or behavior. Well, we're still going to see some of those difficulties in adulthood, right? Yep. So it's still sort of a construct around people who struggle within certain environments and, and maybe that child who had trouble uh, struggling with the school environment is also going to have trouble struggling with, I don't know, a corporate environment, you know, an office environment 25 years later. But that doesn't mean that person does might not have a different environment where they do very well in. And I'll give you an example I'm trying to uh, focus on here to bring this up. So when I hit seventh grade, um we began to be sorted in in my public school along two different paths. One path was really a trade school path and and the the people and it was boys who were being funneled down that path they got to be in in classes where they did things like build things with metal and they got to go in and like take cars apart and and that sort of thing and Meanwhile, others of us were sort of um, set down a path for like oh we 're going to study you know, geometry and, you know, math, that sort of thing. Well, I was quite jealous of the kids who got funneled funnel down into the <laughs> trade schools because I would have been much more interested in learning how to tear apart an engine than to do like, I don't know, trigonometry. Mm-hmm. And my point is, let's say someone who didn't like to sit in a, a chair and do math all day or whatever it might be, but loved taking apart an engine and would focus on that. Well, in other words, they found an environment they excelled in. And now maybe what happened by the time they were 30, uh, I don't know, maybe they were an engineer for, for, for a car c- company, or maybe they had an automobile shop. Who knows? But my point is different individuals thrive in different environments. And part of ADHD is saying like certain groups don't thrive in a school environment, And then when we move to adults, there are certain adults that don't thrive in an office environment, for for example. So you you just have to realize that ADHD is a construct, construct, whether it be for children or for adults, that in some ways is saying that people aren't thriving in whatever environment they are in. But that doesn't mean that they might not thrive in an incredible way if they were in a different environment.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, uh, I've said this all along that, you know, once edu- the education system adjusts and caters to all different learning styles and different types and the, the teaching methods or what's being taught is, is becoming more interesting, right, or more uh, of the times, then, then these kids are going to be more excited and more engaged and they're going to stand out less, Right.
1: Yeah, and there's plenty of evidence from from examples where you change the school environment, you change also what kids eat before they come to school, and you teach them to be, uh, you know, to 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 be more aware of how food can affect you know the mind and the emotions and behavior, and also in other words, they start doing a better diet. Um, there's all sorts of evidence that that actually helps uh, dramatically reduce the number of kids quote. That who have ADHD, in other words, that are exhibiting these certain behaviors that teachers might find um, irritating. Yeah. So, you know, and that goes back to ADHD is a diagnosis that tells of a kid who's not thriving in a certain environment. And if we change that kid's environment, more often than not, they'll do well. Yeah. I mean, part of the story is like, you know, the old story is, the kid has ADHD in the school and then he comes home and he doesn't have ADHD. Or if he's on a soccer field, he doesn't have ADHD.
0: Right. Or if he's doing something he loves, right? He can pay attention. No deficit. Right. Now uh, you've been very gracious with your time. I just want to be perhaps getting to one more question, if I may.
1: Yeah. Um, Then I I will have to run, but it's, it's been good. uh, So last last question.
0: question and I'll keep it brief.
1: What do you I'll think have to try the, to make my answers brief. I'm the one who goes
0: <laughs> on and on. No, no, your answers are fascinating and very informative. So thank you for that. Um, one, one of the questions is, you know, wh- how come so many parents are um, not willing to change the environment? Because we know that yes, some can't afford it. Some, you know, don't have the resources. But there's, I always say, there's when there's a will, there's a way. But what is it that parents feel they need to disrupt, they would have to disrupt if they were to change schools or change, uh, move to another city or, you know, something, uh, something of that effect? What do you think keeps them fearful or keeps them uh, caged in this, this dilemma with this condition? Well, there's
1: a lot of things that keep them caged in this dilemma. The first is, what is the conventional narrative? Something's wrong with their kids, so they're caged within a narrative right from the start. Often, okay, so they're not being primed to think that, like, oh, maybe if you change your kid's environment, uh, or maybe the school environment is the problem. That's not the that's not the story that they're presented with. The story is there's something wrong with your kid. Okay, that's the first cage. The second cage is sometimes schools are calling up parents and saying, hey, if you want your kid to be here, they you know, your kid has ADHD, you better get him treatment for this. So there's a sort of state power. You know, the school is an extension of state power. That's what's pushing them down this pathway. Like, if you want your kid to be in school, we need them diagnosed and medicated. Now, there's a story, by the way, behind pharmaceutical companies providing money in essence to schools to start looking at kids through this lens and to start like calling up the parents etc that's its own story but so i'm a parent you call me up you're my kid's parent hey your kid's not doing so well in my class i think he has adhd now what am i going to do as a parent so i can resist but maybe i'm even going to hear like well then we don't want your kid in our school that you might even get a call to social services that you're denying your kid medical care. So it's really hard to break out of that cage. I mean, uh, our society has built a pretty good cage to to put the parents in. And, And, you know, so I don't blame parents at all. I mean, it takes a lot of willpower. and It takes a lot of resources to individually fight that story and fight that practice. Now, if you have others around here, if you're in a school district that doesn't want to diagnose kids with ADHD, it becomes much easier, you know, because the the sort of the school population is resisting that idea.
0: Mm. Well said. I like that. And look, uh, thank you so much for all this, uh, for your time. This has been very valuable. I hope our listeners take a lot, a lot away from this. I'm going to leave some show notes with the Madden America website, your books, so people can look you up. Um, But I just, I'm very, very grateful and and, uh, thank you so much for for doing this. It means a lot to me.
1: Oh, no, my pleasure. And Roman, one of the things we've done on Mad in America, there's a section Mm -hmm. for parents. And there's a section for parents that they can see the evidence, the research on ADHD. So, we, you know, there's all, as we were talking about cages, there's all this information that is peddled to them. By the powers that be and what we've done on on mad in america for parents is going okay let's look at the what the research has actually found so has it found for example uh a genetic cause or has it found some sort of brain abnormality and what is the real research around what the drugs do you know the chemical imbalance story okay. and also we can talk about the MTA study. What do we see from the long-term effects? And finally, what are some of the withdrawal effects once you've been on these drugs? So it's meant to be an inf- informational resource that can help parents work through this decision of what to do when their child is so, so desperate.
0: Uh, absolutely. i make a direct link to that so parents can check that out. And I think just the work you're doing is Phenomenal, it's impacted me and my family. So on our behalf, thank you for doing the work you're doing so we get to do the work we're doing. So I appreciate I that.
1: It's my pleasure though. The, the whole purpose is, to ha- is, is an informed consent purpose. So I love that, that parents as they're confronted with this can have information that hopefully will enable them to make decisions that are, uh, you know, are the best for their children and not just yeah. for the moment but for their, their for so that the children can grow up and thrive and and you know go through the difficulties that can help you grow up and thrive later
0: awesome all right thank you bob uh, appreciate well, that thanks very much i enjoyed it yes until soon okay Ciao. take care bye you